Hello and welcome to Disenfranchised, Ba-bum. the podcast that talks about movies Ba-bum. that should have been franchises, Ba-bum. but then weren't. I am one of your hosts, Stephen Foxworthy, and uh, who's that walking in with his cello, ready to join me in our uh, violin cello duets? Why, it's my co-host, Brett Wright. Hi, Brett. Uh, R Stephen. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I would say wrong 2003 seafaring movie, but we'll get into it. Wait a minute, um, hold on. Did I watch the wrong movie again? Ah, uh, damn it, Brett. Why do you always do this to me? Okay, let's pause the recording, and then you go watch the right movie, and we'll come back. Bear with us, everybody. And we're back. Brett has now watched the right movie, and we're ready to record. Uh, this week, we're talking about what movie, Brett? Uh, look, you tell me to watch a seafaring movie from that year. I'm going to go watch Pirates of the Caribbean. All right? No, so. no. That is not what I told you. That obviously has spawned a huge franchise, Brett. We're talking about the one that didn't spawn a huge franchise, which is... Master and Commander. The far side of the world? Other side not of the world? Far. Far side. Far, it's the far. far side of the world, it's, sure. It's I, so so very far. Um, nobody remembers the subtitle of this movie. They just call it Master and Commander. We know that. I remember it, Brett. Master and Commander, <laughs> colon, the far side of the world, starring Russell Crowe, Paul Bettany, James Darcy, Edward Woodall, Chris Larkin, Max Perkis, Jack Randall, Max Bennett, and uh, basically just a, a just a, a murderer's row of British character actors. Uh, David Threlfall from uh, from the original Shameless television show is in this as uh, just the the most sour and exacerbated um, like steward that a captain ever had. Um, it's great. It's it's delightful. Directed by uh, Peter Weir. And uh, is the first film and maybe the only film that we will ever talk about that was nominated for a Best Picture Oscar. Uh, Crazy. We'll, Crazy. We'll get into it. Yeah, we'll get into it. It's uh, it's kind of uh, it's kind of madness, but uh, it is based on a series of novels. Uh, am I am I correct on that, Brad? Uh, you are. There's it's oh, it's a series. All right. There are 21 books in this series, my friend. And how many of those have you read? one really no no i'm kidding i haven't read any of these <laughs> i was gonna say that's one more than i've read so <laughs> yeah so I, i'm and i'm gonna be honest with you i did not see this movie when it came out like my first time watching this was last week when i was watching it in preparation for this podcast so uh, i was this always kind of seemed like a rather lackluster dad movie to me uh instead of what it actually is which is like the king of dad movies but i i guess i'm getting a little ahead of myself what what is your um I'm obviously neither of us really read the books, but what is your exposure to this property? Had you seen this movie before? No, no, I'd also seen it um, for the first time for this uh, episode. And yeah, I kind of felt the same way about it. I thought it was, it was either like Oscar bait or it was just like, you know, this is, this is just, it's a Russell Crowe movie. Not really a big fan of Russell Crowe. I like gladiator. I mean, first of all, shame um, on you. I well look man his you know public persona maybe not the best for a while there so you know I didn't really care to see him as an actor well you 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 don't approve of punching out paparazzi he was also kind of a dick to like hotel staff and, oh was he I yeah, didn't know that part yeah I just knew he would get drunk and like punch out paparazzi which I I think is kind of funny not I mean paparazzi they they do their work it's fine but I don't think they should harass people. That's uh, my official stance. I agree. Yeah, that 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 wasn't the best. But he, uh, 
Yeah, he was kind of notorious for being just an asshole in general, not just a paparazzi. Oh, that's a bummer. Yeah, I mean, I, I I like Russell Crowe. I think I think he's he's done a lot of good work. I was a fan of him at the time. Uh, I mean, obviously, Gladiator was everywhere and everything the year that it came out, three years previous to this. Um, but he had pretty much developed uh, a, a real star persona in the years following that. That I was, I, I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was all in on it. Like watching every Russell Crowe movie ever, I did not, for example, see a good year. Um, the movie uh, where he and Ridley Scott go to Italy with uh, Marion Cotillard and just drink wine. Uh, I didn't see that movie. But, uh, you know, I, I liked Russell Crowe. I, I watched his movies, and uh, I still like Russell Crowe. I'll still watch his movies. He's, he's, he's a good actor. I mean, I've probably turned, you know, turned the corner on him. I mean, he's been out of the public eye for long enough, so, that you know, yeah, it's whatever. When but, did you uh, turn the corner on Russell Crowe? Man, I don't know. I haven't really been keeping track. Uh, <laughs> not, I mean, there was, I guess there was a point where I was like, hey, it's been like, you know, 10 years. I guess I should stop hating this guy. I haven't heard anything new about him. So, yeah. So, hey, I watched this movie and I'm like, you know what? It's pretty good. Yeah, you should so, watch more Russell Crowe movies. I, I, I should. I don't know how I slept on this one because this was, I mean, 2003, I was in my full, I love to watch Oscar movies like fervor. Uh, and I watched a number of the other films in this year's um, Best Picture race. So I'm honestly not entirely sure what made me uh, ultimately skip out on this one. Really, yeah, uh, it just I just I just missed it. I guess this this uh, I don't know. This was around my one college year, which I didn't I didn't watch any movies for like two or three years between like 2003 and 2005. Really, okay. very very few. There's like a huge gap in my cinematic knowledge around that time. Um, and I think this this is one of them. Just didn't really, gotcha. to go see a movie around that time. It had to really grab my attention, you know, like Pirates of the Caribbean. So fair enough. So something like this definitely would have been like, eh, I'll watch it later. Maybe if it's on TV, I don't really care that much. Sure, sure. Uh, foolish, we both were because uh, this movie slaps. Um, indeed, indeed. You've you've done a little bit of reading into the book series. Do you? Uh, what can you tell me about the uh, the rest of the novels that comprise, or the novels upon which this film was based? The Patrick O'Brien novels upon which this film was based. Uh, man, the, for some reason, and maybe if you've seen the movie, you might understand this. I have seen the movie. Uh, well, I'm talking to the general audience, Stephen, not you. Of course, you've watched this movie. Um, it's it's a it's an amalgamation of a bunch of different novels. So actually, of, of the 21 novels in this book series, this film combines elements from 13 of them. Oh, my. Um, now, I mean, the basic plot comes from the far side of the world. Um, which, which is where this movie gets its subtitle from. Right. So that makes sense. Um, but this takes place in 1805 instead of 1813. Mm. Um, so like it kind of it kind of draws from a bunch of di- all, a bunch of the different novels, but doesn't really follow one in particular, or really stays true to the events of the ones that it did borrow from. Um, it's it's kind of all over the place in terms of its source material, and that may have it probably didn't directly affect sequel possibilities because I'm sure they just could have done the same thing. Um, I mean, the, the, I mean, honestly, I've, I've been watching the James Bond movies right now because they're streaming on Hulu. So why not? 
Um, but they kind of have a similar approach with regard to adaptation. Like the movies don't bear much resemblance to the novels outside of usually the titles uh, in some cases. And in some cases, like elements that appear in one novel will show up in another movie. It's all kind of piecemeal and slapdash and kind of the way that they put it all together. But it, I mean, it ultimately kind of works to create a whole, uh, I mean, some Bond movies are better than others, but I mean, with regard to adaptation, that's not necessarily, I would say, a limiting factor as to making more of these if they really wanted to. Well, yeah, that's true. They, you know, they could do the James Bond tact of just toss, you know, toss the source material out more or less. So, yeah, I guess that could have worked. But it's weird that you have this this 21 book series and decide to just take a bunch of different bits from a bunch of different books instead of just like okay, we'll adapt the first two into a movie and then we'll adapt the third and fourth one into a movie and or then we'll do five, six, and seven. Um, it's, it's an interesting, um, kind of the opposite of what we usually talk about. It wasn't really putting the cart before the horse. It was just uh, putting the car in the horse or putting the horse in the cart and just sort of driving it. Um, it, it basically is, it, it's kind of the thing like, yeah, we want to make more of these, but in case we don't get to, let's put as many of the good bits in the first one as we can. Rather than just making the assumption, yeah, people are going to want to watch more of these, so let's let's keep hinting at things. But ultimately, what they're left with is a really good movie, uh, which so often we don't end up seeing. Which is why I think, which is why I think it's more of a bummer this didn't get the franchise that it was planning for. Because uh, I mean, if they put that much care into the first movie, I would like to think that the others would be just as good. Of course, there are always like Highlander and Jaws, where the first movie is incredible and the rest of them suck out loud. So. Who's to say, really? Yeah, how how often do you get a really high-quality first movie in a franchise, and then the subsequent sequels are just as good? I mean, you know, sometimes it could happen. I don't know, man. I honestly can't think of any off the top of my head. Can you? Back to the Future? Oh, okay. I mean, that's that's that franchise is pretty much solid start to finish. There's not a bad entry in that franchise. That's very true. Mm, okay. Exception to the rule, maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, and there are, there are, I know there are franchises that a lot of people love, and we'll probably get a lot of comments. We're like, well, I love this franchise, but I mean, I, I'm trying to think like, I, I think with the exception of three, the Scream franchise is really solid. I've espoused my love for that franchise before. And even three is not as bad as some entries, some low entries in other horror franchises. But I mean, you've got at least two really good sequels out of the Scream premise. Uh, and the, the first movie is the best in the series, but two and four are also good in their own right yeah fair point so i mean i'm and i'm sure if if i had more time to think about it i would probably come up with more and may still before the end of this episode who knows but um but i mean it is possible i think to have a a franchise of good movies um you don't have to have weak links throughout the friend i mean you could argue that in some cases they even get better after the first movie like the first harry potter movie is not that great compared to some of the later entries in the series that's true. Uh, let's get back to Master and Commander. Uh, so the, the series is based around uh, the captain of the HMS Surprise, um, which, if I'm not mistaken, is an actual ship. Um, although Jack Aubrey is not its real captain. I, I, I'm pretty sure that's correct. Um, the, the people are fictional, but most of the events are not from what I'm given to understand, uh, because Patrick O'Brien, the author, did a lot of research into the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah, from from what I from the research I did, it looks like it, 
he doesn't follow the historical timeline very well. Um, but I mean, he, he takes some liberties with history, but is on the whole pretty accurate to what happened. Okay. Uh, I mean, you've got a lot of different, a lot of different ideas, but this is, this was a real ship. There's actually a replica of it that still sails. Uh, actually, if you look at our Twitter page, when I posted the clues for the month of November for the films we'd be covering in the month of November, uh, I put a picture of the replica of the HMS surprise in there or a painting of it. One of the two is a painting or, or the actual replica of the ship, which I don't believe. I, I don't know if the replica was made for the film or if they used another replica, but it, I mean, look, man, this movie is great and I'd probably didn't do as much digging and as much research as I would have liked to do for this, for this one. But I just had so much fun watching the movie that I don't really care. I just, I kind of want to just enjoy that movie. Just a spoiler alert for what I thought of it at the end. It's going to be real good. But we do need to recount the plot of this movie because we're kind of getting a little ahead of ourselves uh, with regard to talking about uh, some of the aspects of this movie. Uh, so let's do the plot in 60 seconds. Uh, this is where one of us uh, will recount the plot of the film Master and Commander, colon, The Far Side of the World from 2003, directed by Peter Weir and starring Russell Crowe and Paul Bettany uh, in 60 seconds or less, or your podcast is free. Uh, and how do we decide which of us does that? We flip the coin of justice, of course. Uh, so I'm going to flip the coin of justice, and Brett's going to call it in the air. Brett, call it in the air. Uh, let's go with heads this week. Uh, it is tails. Yeah, well, you know. And so, Brett, it falls to you once again, as it ever seems to do, uh, to give us the plot of... Master Commander Cole on the Far Side of the World from 2003, directed by Peter Weir, starring Russell Crowe and Paul Bettany, in 60 seconds or less. Are you ready, sir? Uh, look, man, not really. Because <laughs> Look, as much as I really enjoy this movie, the plot is kind of all over the place because it's borrowing so many different things, so many different events from so many different novels. I'm not going to want to like go beat by beat with every single episodic thing that happens in this movie, so we're just going to we're going to give you a quick overview of everything. Broad um, strokes, man. Broad strokes. That's that's the way to do it. Uh, you know, I'm real bad at the broad strokes. Um, I do. I do. Get, You're going to get bogged down in the minutia, and we're going to be here for like an hour. So, I mean, that was going to happen regardless. Our shortest yeah. episode is like, what, 53 minutes so far? So, yeah, well. All right, man. Let's do it. All right. And your minute starts now. Um, okay, so uh, uh, Russell Crowe's character is captain of a ship, and the ship gets attacked um, out of nowhere by this other French ship, um, and that really pisses him off because he doesn't like to lose, uh, so he spends the rest of this movie trying to hunt down the French ship. Um, some other stuff happens. Uh, Paul Bettany almost dies in the stupidest way. Um, 30 seconds. Uh, some other people die. Uh, there's the one guy that gets the brain damage, but he somehow survives because Paul Bettany is a wonderful doctor, um, who does brain surgery on a shit on a pirate ship in the 1800s. Incredible. Um, and then they find, then they find the French ship and they defeat it and board it. And that's it. Yeah, that's it. And that's time. Um, I mean, you you got you got most of it there. Uh, you missed, uh, you know, a few things. 
Um, like but, all the things, all the things. I mean, not all the things. You got the brain surgery. You missed the Galapagos Islands. Oh yeah, that's important. That's that's a big part of the movie. I that's probably should have mentioned that. Where, yeah. where, where Paul Bettany is like trying to like uh, to, uh, basically be Charles Darwin, and more or you, less. You missed the part where there's like a an attempted mutiny, kind of, sort of, um, with the uh, the the kids being insubordinate to the other kid. Because a lot of kids apparently fought during the Napoleonic Wars. A lot of a lot of children on to, on uh, on Royal Navy ships. England, <laughs> what you doing? I don't know. It was a weird time, man. Napoleon was doing stuff, and the British didn't like it. So yeah, yeah, boy. Oh, had it. It. So Napoleon it was all hands on deck. Uh, or and Napoleon, or as they call him in this movie, Old Bony, which what a great nickname. What a great nickname. I wrote that down. I was like, Old Bony. That's what I'm going to start calling Napoleon Old Bony from now on. I'm sure he would have enjoyed that more than all the short jokes he got in later years, even though he wasn't really that short. Sure. Right. Yeah. Um, the, uh, I don't know, the the very sensitive portrayal of him in uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Always, always great. Going down water slides and basically being any they don't make a lot of short jokes in that one they it's mostly egomaniacal jokes in that one of course we're recording this the day after our own egomaniac has been voted out of office so spirits just generally run in pretty high uh as as things go yeah and then and then good old our new president joe biden decides to just play him off with some jackie wilson just smashing the slime covered ceiling of the white house in a giant statue of liberty uh, you know, just the way that we all knew it was going to happen. Indeed, it's, it's Indeed. great. You truly, you love to see it. Uh, so this movie, um, directed by uh, Peter Weir, who is um, kind of a prolific filmmaker. Uh, I know you're not probably ter- terribly familiar with him by name, um, but guy has a uh, a really impressive resume uh, with regard to films. Um, born in Australia, so he's an Australian filmmaker, and works tends to work with a good deal of uh, Australian actors. Uh, one of his early hits was the movie that gave us Mel Gibson, for good or ill, the movie Gallipoli in 1981. Uh, the Year of Living Dangerously was Peter Weir in 1982. The Harrison Ford film Witness. Um, Dead Poet Society, that great Robin Williams role, uh, Oh Captain, My Captain, We Stand. And then, I mean, there's some other stuff in here. A movie called Green Card, which I have not seen in 1990. A movie called Fearless, which I've also not seen in 1993. And then in 1998, the movie he makes right before this one, the movie I know you've seen, Brett, but it's kind of crazy that his one-two punch is this movie and Master and Commander. I uh, Before we started recording, I, I offered if you wanted to guess, and you, you declined it to guess. So now I'm just going to tell you right here on the air what that movie was. I mean, last chance to guess. You just want to take a, a gander. Stars, uh, I would say probably um, a, a comedic talent that you are probably fond of. Look, I, I recognize the guy's name, but mm-hmm. I cannot place it. So whatever you're going to say is probably going to be a shock to my system. And I will probably go... Oh, okay. I know that. It's it's a movie I, I regularly send you a GIF from. I regularly send you a GIF from the end of this movie. And when I say regularly, I I mean, I've probably sent it to you at least two or three times in our random text threads that we have, particularly when you've just commended something that I've done. 
Oh, is it Truman Show? It is Truman Show, yes. Hey, look at that. Uh, Jim Carrey's deep bow from the end of that movie is what I usually say when when Brett has complimented me on something, usually on a really stupid letterboxed list. Um, but I'll, I'll shoot that that gif of, of Truman over to him. Uh, but yes, his his immediate follow or his immediate precursor to this was the Truman Show, and he's really only made one movie since, uh, which is a movie called The Way Back, uh, which I have never seen, and I've only heard of peripherally as it's often lumped in as being a joke with The Way Back and the movie The Way Way Back, which came out around the same time, I think, maybe a little later. But that movie's got like Colin Farrell, uh, the Truman Show's own Ed Harris, but yeah, I mean Peter Weir. Great director. Has not directed a film since 2010. I don't know if he's in Ailing Health, but um, I mean, he was born in 1944, so he's probably getting up there. Probably not often able to direct as much as he uh, as much as he would like, but I would like to see more films from him, and honestly, if those films were more Master and Commander joints, so much the better, quite frankly. I mean, Truman Show's close. Truman Show feels like a I remember people talking about Truman Show at the time as sort of like an Oscar movie. I don't know if it really went anywhere in that uh, direction, but well, I, I will find out for you real quick. Um, it was nominated for three Oscars, yeah, and one of those was not Best Actor Jim Carrey because he has never been nominated for an Oscar. Famously, um, you want to take a guess as to what three Oscars it was nominated for? Uh, two, I know two individuals that we have already mentioned in this conversation have. Uh, are, are were nominated for Oscars. Uh, it was one of them, Ed Harris. One of them is Ed Harris, Best Supporting Actor. Sure. Um, hey, best Director? Best Director, Peter Weir. And uh, the other one uh, that you might not get readily, uh, Best Writing, uh, Best Original Screenplay. Andrew Nichol was the screenwriter for um, The Truman Show. So yeah, dude, dude is doing some Oscar-worthy stuff later in his career, and it's impressive. It's uh, you love to see it. That is, that's always nice to see. You do truly love to see it. Uh, but yeah, Peter Weir, uh, and so maybe a lot of the um, goodwill for uh, that film kind of uh, plays into the Oscar trajectory for uh, Master and Commander. The dude is ultimately nominated for six Academy Awards across his career. Uh, he's nominated for Best Director no fewer than four times. Uh, he was directed, uh, or he was nominated for Witness, Dead Poet Society, Truman Show, and Master and Commander. Uh, he was nominated for Best Screenplay for the movie Green Card, and also as uh, a producer on Master and Commander, which, as we mentioned, was a Best Picture nominee. So that's that's six Oscars in his career. has has yet to win, sadly which is uh, all the more reason for him to make another movie, quite frankly. He has a real uh, director side Liza Minnelli situation. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I mean, and I, I, honestly, he didn't stand a chance in 2003 because 2003 is um, the year of the great Lord of the Rings suite um, where Lord of the Rings uh, Return of the King literally wins everything it was nominated for so if you're nominated in a category with anything from lord of the rings you're losing which is kind uh, of a bummer the uh the year that the nerds broke the oscar glass ceiling <laughs> exactly that's exactly what happened um but i mean you've got the two nominated in uh, a number of categories together uh ultimately master commander only pulls out the win in two categories out of the 
oh gosh, one, two, three, four, five, six. Out of the 10 that it's nominated for, only ends up winning two. One is Best Cinematography, which, yes, absolutely it is, because this movie is freaking gorgeous to look at. From like the grand vistas, like that last shot of the just the ship sailing off into the great grand blue ocean. Um, but then also like the the really close up intense stuff. Um, the action scenes are so clear. There's never a question as to what's going on, as to who's where. Like you you can follow it from start to finish, which is rare for action scenes anymore, I feel. Even prevised ones tend to look a little mm. And and especially rare for a movie like this, when there's there's a lot of like stuff flying around when a cannonball hits and the, the sheer amount of people on screen at a time is impressive that I was never like, I don't know what's going on. I could follow yeah. everything and that's really impressive. Yeah, which I mean that's that pays a lot of, of tribute to the both the cinematography and the direction of this film. And particularly when you compare it, well, we are gonna compare it to Pirates of the Caribbean, but I, I want to cover the rest of the Oscar stuff first, and then we can move on to the the other the the other seafaring 2003 movie that was meant to start a franchise. Um, uh, and of course, the other film or the other Oscar, of course, the other Oscar that it won was Best Sound Editing. Interesting that it was also nominated for, but did not win Best Sound Mixing because usually those awards get shared. Usually, if you win one of the sound Oscars, you win the second one. It doesn't happen often that they two get mixed up, but I bet if I looked up who won Best Sound Mixing, uh, I would see that, yes, Lord of the Rings was, in fact, nominated in that category and therefore won that category. So uh, that's that's why the two were split, whereas it was not nominated in uh, the Best Sound Editing category. Uh, however, Master and Commander did beat Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl for Best Sound Editing. Um, something people may not remember that first parts of the Caribbean movie got nominated for Oscars. That's insane to me. And you know, the the real coup of that movie is that that? Johnny Depp got nominated for best lead actor, but Russell Crowe didn't. Are are you serious right now? I am. I am as a heart attack. My friend, that movie was nominated for five Oscars. So half as many uh, as uh, master and commander. It didn't win any of them. But yes, Johnny Depp was nominated for Best Leading Actor, uh, and Russell Crowe uh, was not. Now, ultimately, they probably both would have lost to Sean Penn, uh, who was kind of a shoe-in that year for Mystic River. But that having been said, like, um, really bizarre that that's the performance that they went with um, over, uh, you know, of those two. Looking back, it's easy to forget because of how obnoxious the character has eventually become. But it's easy to forget how much of a sensation that performance was because uh, that pretty much turned Johnny Depp into like the Johnny Depp that we know and to like the biggest star in Hollywood. But like that performance was every everyone had their own um, Jack Sparrow impression. Like it was it was huge. You're looking at me doubtfully like you don't remember what a sensation that performance was. No, no, I, I remember that. What what I don't understand is. And maybe this is just my general unfamiliarity with the Oscars, but like I thought on the whole, the Academy never gives two shits about that sort of thing. I mean, maybe that's why he didn't win. Sure. I mean, Sasha Baron Cohen was not nominated for Borat. So, I mean, take some solace in that, I guess. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not like 
I'm not throwing any shade on Johnny Depp's performance. I like Johnny Depp and I liked his performance as Jack Sparrow on the whole. I like Johnny Depp in general. He's, you know, I'm a Tim Burton fan. So of course I like Johnny Depp and you, you um, kind of have to, if you're a, if you're a Tim Burton fan. Yeah. So, I mean, it's I'm definitely not throwing any shade in that direction. Um, especially nowadays with the whole controversy um, surrounding him. But uh, look, man, look, I, I stand with Johnny Depp. I'm just going to say that. Um, so, yeah, I just I thought the Academy, like even in terms of nominations, the the Academy doesn't care about like how popular something is. Uh, you want to know something even crazier, though? Hmm. Johnny Depp won the SAG that year. Wow. For for best actor. Well, good uh, for him. So, I mean, by all accounts, uh, he would have been probably the odds on favorite going into the Oscar ceremony because SAG is probably the biggest indicator of Oscar success when it comes to the acting awards, usually. Actually, let me verify that. I'm pretty sure that's accurate, but I want to verify just to make sure I'm not talking out of my rear end here. No, I, I remember that that conversation was a big deal last yes. year. Uh, no, year before. I forget. Whatever year Uncut Gems was a big deal. Last year. Yeah, last year. And Adam Sandler won I, the SAG. And they were like, Adam Sandler's going to get an Oscar this year, and he didn't. What Did he win the SAG? I thought he did win the SAG, yeah. Didn't he? Oh, I don't. I, I I know he was probably nominated. He should have been nominated for a SAG and an Oscar. That performance was incredible. Yeah, now, you sure. got me, now you got me looking up Adam Sandler for some reason. But no, Depp did a hundred percent win the SAG for uh, for Pirates of the Caribbean, which again is kind of uh, wild, all things considered. Um, but Adam Sandler, it feels almost pointed that they uh, didn't uh, nominate him for. Uh, the Oscar. It's almost like they intended to not. Uh, Adam Sandler not nominated for a Screen Actors Guild Award. So what award did he win for Uncut Gems? He won an award for it. Maybe it wasn't the SAG Award. Look, I don't follow like the award season. I just you don't see stuff peripherally. Uh, he won. <laughs> he won the uh, the AARP Movies for Grown Ups Award uh, for really? for Uncut Gems. Um, he was nominated by the Alliance of Women Film Journalists, uh, the Austin Film Critics Association. He won that one. Um, let me see what else here. Won the Boston Online Film Critics Association, uh, wow. as well as the Boston Society of Film Critics. Uh, oh, Independent Independent Spirit Awards is probably what you're thinking of. Oh, okay. That's probably what it was then. Which is a very, that is definitely the kind of performance that the Independent Spirit Awards would nominate. And and award, quite frankly, um, but yeah, um, he uh, didn't even get nominated for a Golden Globe for that one. Um, his only Golden Globe nominee is from the the great Paul Thomas Anderson movie Punch Drunk Love that came out the year before this movie we're talking about today. Um, but yeah, that that Johnny Depp was nominated for an Oscar and Russell Crowe was not uh, is is wild to me, just just crazy, but. Um, but yeah, Depp did end up winning the SAG for Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, I don't think Russell Crowe was nominated for the SAG at all that year. I can double check on that too. But look, man, the whole just the Academy and all all of that is ridiculous. It's just real. It's real dumb, in my opinion. I don't think I don't think they really. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what I want to say here, but it seems You're ridiculous. Not a- you're not an award season fan, whereas I eat that up with a spoon. No, I generally I'm just I'm not interested in it because I mean, I 
I don't really care, I guess is what I want to say. Because, you know, there's the year where like Lord of the Rings wins everything. And you're like, yay, they may be identifying popular culture. They're not. Um, the Academy is, uh, for as long as they've been around, have completely disregarded horror as a genre. Um, yeah, you know that's not entirely true. Uh, more or less it is. Um, I mean, they have they have an award for... I, I gave every you a other genre big, of film. List once I remember I gave you a big long list of all the horror films that were nominated for an Oscar and uh all the uh, there there have been a few wins like Silence of the Lambs which I know you don't really consider horror but kind of is um did win for did win best picture uh Kathy Bates won her Oscar for Misery which is a freaking Stephen King adaptation I mean it has happened it now, recently, I will agree, like uh, Hereditary, which is a movie I was not a fan of, but a lot of people really liked. And I will agree, Tony Collette's performance in it is really good. Uh, largely got ignored. Uh, but Get Out did get nominated for an Oscar, for several Oscars, and even won a couple. So, I mean, it, it doesn't completely disregard horror, but I think it's more selective about what horror it chooses to honor. Well, and, and don't they... And again, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm definitely not going to make any blanket statements anymore because, you know, <laughs> I've, I've fallen on too many swords being thinking I'm, I know what I'm talking about and then I don't. Um, <laughs> they have an award for like every other genre of film except for horror, right? Like no, best... Oscar, Oscar doesn't do, doesn't break it up by genre. There's there's best picture and that's it. Well, I thought there's like best drama, best comedy. Is that not a thing? The, the the drama comedy split is in the Golden Globes. Oh, okay. And it's only those two. It's like best drama or best comedy slash musical, which honestly these days is kind of a joke because uh, Ridley Scott's The Martian won best comedy and it's not a comedy. I don't know in what universe you can get around to that being a comedy. Whereas A Star is Born, which is clearly a musical, won best drama. So, I mean, it, there's no rhyme or re- Basically, the Golden Globes while a lot of people defend them and they are are usually a pretty good barometer of what will get Oscar attention later on um, is, is not taken entirely seriously. There are reasons why it should be. And also reasons why it should. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. This, this, this whole conversation has not made me want to watch uh, award shows anymore. So, (laughs) so there's that, I guess. I think they're great. I love them. I will continue to love them. And hey, Bong Joon-ho's Parasite won Best Picture last year. And if that's not a reason to celebrate, or earlier this year, I guess, we've lived five years just in the last year, guys. It's it's crazy. Time is an illusion. This year especially. Um, But no, Bong Joon-ho won uh, won his Oscar for Parasite uh, earlier this year. Best Picture, um, and Best Director, and Best Screenplay, and Best Foreign Film. So... Uh, I mean, Parasite, that's a good movie and a movie you loved, as I recall. Oh, yeah, I love Parasite. It's fantastic and good. I'm very glad that he won all those awards for it. Oh, another horror movie that got Oscar attention and even ended up winning uh, The Shape of Water, which has some some horror elements to it. It's basically the creature from the Black Lagoon. So, I mean, you know, and that's Guillermo del Toro, famous genre filmmaker Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro winning his Oscar for that one. So. Yeah, I consider that movie more sci-fi, but you know, to each their own. It, I mean, you know, there's, there, you got, so, yeah, it's a monster movie, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Master <laughs> and Commander. Anyway, back on track. Master what are we talking about again? Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, so we're we're talking about the Oscar, basically the Oscar. What happened with the Oscars for this movie? That uh, it was nominated for ten, won two, uh, was probably among the more 
nominated films, although that year was nothing else was going to happen if it wasn't if it was nominated against Lord of the Rings. Like that was the 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 year the Academy decided to give all of their love, affection, and attention to Lord of the Rings for one reason or another. Uh, it was kind of the culmination of that trilogy, very important early 2000s film trilogy. Everyone loved it. Uh, all of my friends would go to all the midnight showings, all of the midnight showings for those movies, whereas I would see them like a week later and be perfectly happy seeing it at like 8 o'clock on a Tuesday. Yeah, it was never it was never a Star Wars for me. It was never a... Even Harry Potter at the height of its fame uh, to make a little in episode callback. I, uh, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't a franchise that I was like, man, I got to go out and see the new Pirates of the Caribbean like right now. Sure. You, um, well, I, I haven't, I haven't actually seen like the last two. So oh, I was talking about Lord of the Rings, not Pirates of the Caribbean, but no Pirates of the Caribbean that no. I actually watched all those movies this year and um, uh, they're mostly bad. Yeah. They're mostly yeah, they very are. bad. Um, the mm-hmm. first three are the best three, uh, and those are the ones that Gore, Ber- Gore Verbinski directed. And the the fourth one is directed by Rob Marshall, which is weird. And then the fifth one, they're like, okay, well, obviously going away from the, the Kira Knightley and Orlando Bloom of the whole thing didn't work out so well for us. So let's go back to that stuff. And uh, instead of that working, I don't know, it. They the the secondary character is not... Orlando Bloom's character, it's his son, and he's barely in the movie. And also Kira Knightley doesn't even say a word in the movie. She's like just has like a couple of scenes where she's seen from afar and then one close up. And she's third build in the movie, Brett. She's third build in the movie. Maybe fourth build, but she's built way too high in that movie for it to make any sense at all. It's and, that's, and that's just because she's a big name, I guess. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's gotta be what it's gotta be it. I can't think of another reason why, why it would be as such. Um, but yeah, no, that, that franchise is one I largely dislike kind of one of those, this is what's wrong with the modern franchise era kind of thing. And Johnny Depp's character is really the only constant through those movies. Uh, also the guy that with the big mutton chops Gibbs, he's in all of them as well for some reason, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird series. It's a weird franchise. Fortunately, we'll never have to talk about it on this podcast ever again, uh, which I'm grateful for um, because it, it's a franchise. So unless they do a, a, an unsuccessful reboot, we will never have to talk about it again. Yay. However, we will talk about a lot of movies that were inspired by it, like um, all the movies that Disney made based on rides after that one hit really big, like uh, The Haunted Mansion or The Country Bears or yeah, so we, we get to talk about all those. All the, or, uh, uh, the unreleased Jungle Cruise movie starring The Rock. Which, I mean, with, The Rock is in it, so it may it may be a San Andreas where they get make more of them, or it may be a Baywatch where they don't. It really, really all depends. But yeah, uh, I mean, if that one's bad, it'll come out on Disney Plus because that's what Disney does with their their bad movies, apparently. They just release them direct to Disney Plus. And don't make you pay for them. The good ones that they think you'd want to see in theater, they'll make you pay for at least. Unfortunately. Yeah, it's it's a whole thing. Looking at you, New Mutants. Well, that one again, we talked about it on that episode. That one they had contracted for a theatrical release. So still, my point still stands, Steven. Okay. Um, let's talk Russell Crowe for a little bit, the star of this movie. Russell Crowe kind of at the end of uh his his brief Oscar run at the beginning of 
the 2000s. Um, it really, that, that run starts for him, even though he had been really great in movies like the, the great Sam Raimi film, The Quick and the Dead, or um, the, uh, the, the film Virtuosity, where he plays a, uh, a serial killer computer program. I do um, love I, I do love virtuosity. I, I know, you know, unabashedly love that movie, and I know I, I shouldn't, up. but I do. He's that's doing such good up. work in that movie, dude. Is he, he usually is, he, he's usually not a scenery chewer, but he's chewing the scenery in that movie, and I love it. Here's the thing: these days, it's just about all he does is chew scenery, which again, I'm I'm here for because Russell Crowe. Um, but that starts for him with L.A. Confidential in 1997, which he is not nominated for, but that film is nominated. And it really starts to give him uh, some, get him some attention uh, from the Academy. Uh, after that, it really starts in earnest in 1999 with uh, The Insider, uh, Michael Mann's The Insider, which is such a great film. And Russell Crowe is absolutely fantastic in it, playing a real live whistleblower uh, who basically kind of blew the whistle on the cigarette industry and did interviews with 60 Minutes. Um, and he's great. He, Jerry Wigand and he's, or Jeffrey Wigand rather. And he's great. Uh, he's nominated for an Oscar for that for his very next film, uh, is a little movie that I like to call gladiator. Uh, and he is nominated for that one and wins his Oscar for gladiator, which feels like an apology for the insider. It's like, sorry, you didn't get it for the insider, but here you can have it for gladiator. And then the year after that, he's nominated again for a beautiful mind. And that feels like, well, if he won for Gladiator, he's got to win for this. And that feels like, well, you, you, we just gave you your Oscar, though. Like, we, it just happened, like, last year. And we already did the back-to-back -back leading actors thing with Tom Hanks earlier this decade. And, I mean... So, no, he does not win uh, in 2001 for A Beautiful Mind, even though he probably should have. And this is his immediate follow-up to A Beautiful Mind. Um, so the fact that he's kind of not nominated for this is what breaks the breaks the trend. And he's not been nominated since, weirdly, uh, even for Cinderella Man, uh, the aforementioned A Good Year, uh, 310 to Yuma, American Gangster. I mean, he's done some really, really, really good work uh, until you get to about 2010. Yeah. And that's when he does the Ridley Scott uh, Robin Hood. And after that, it's just kind of like paycheck movies. He does Les Miserables, which is itself an Oscar player, but there's no way he's getting a nomination for that, is, is one of the more um, derided elements of that film. And then he is he's Jor-El in Man of Steel. He's Noah in the Darren Aronofsky film Noah, uh, which I loved, but no one else does. He's in the Shane Black movie The Nice Guys, which is freaking great. Like he's doing good work. And then the height, of course, of the Russell Crowe paycheck movie, a little film in 2017 that is is in many ways just kind of the bedrock of what this podcast is all about. Uh, the Mummy, where he's playing Dr. Jekyll, right? Henry Jekyll. Correct. Henry Jekyll. Yes. And he and speaking of a speaking of a scenery chewing performance, that is uh, boy, howdy, is that ever one? Because uh, he he's just having the best time just having the best time he also plays roger ailes in the loudest voice one of two uh pop culture uh icons of last year uh about roger ailes the other one being the film bombshell really odd that 2019 was the year we decided to to litigate the the whole fox news roger ailes thing i am not familiar with that 
Oh, uh, he got accused of uh, sexually harassing a bunch of female anchors. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, uh, shocking that Fox News might be bad. Yeah, I mean, just throw them on the pile. It's fine. I mean, not not something we'd really ever considered, I guess. Weird. Oh, no. Wait, what? No. Fox News bad? What are you talking about, Stephen? Uh, and then playing, uh, and and part of what I think makes this movie so compelling is Crow's performance as Jack Aubrey. He has given a proper hero's introduction in this movie. Like there's there the you see the ship and like everything's kind of springs to action immediately. Like his take before you even see his face, like the table gets cleared off. Like he stands up, you see the belt go on, you see the jacket come on, and he turns around, and there's Russell Crowe. And then he goes walking, you follow him through the ship, and he comes out and he's the captain. And everybody immediately like respect. You see it on everybody's face all throughout the ship. Uh, and it really is. I mean, it's it's a proper hero's introduction. And, you know, from moment one, this guy's the hero of the movie. And it's just it's one of those good old fashioned hero shots that you just don't see much of anymore. Uh, I've, I think I've talked about the one at the beginning of Fast Five where you got Vin Diesel coming on the train and it, you're like, oh, OK, this is the hero of the movie. Um, like that. That's just kind of that moment. But it's it, that is that moment for this character. And I think the fact that every other character treats him with such awe and reverence for, for almost the entire movie, like he is unquestioned by everybody but Paul Bettany's character, the Dr. Stephen Maturin, um, which as a Stephen, I really appreciate that his name is Stephen. I, I think that's great. Not enough positive Stevens in the world today, especially after the Trump administration. Uh, a lot of a lot of bad Stevens there. Dude, dude, same with Brett's. Don't even get me started. I, I, next episode, I'll probably bring up one of those cursed brats. So don't you. Yikes, man. Yikes. (laughs) Get ready. Um, But, uh, but I mean, he's just, he's so unquestioned about everything. But uh, the other part of it is Russell Crowe's star performance, like his star persona. Like he, he walks into the movie and he commands the screen from, from minute one. And you know, like, this is the guy. So I would say half everybody else, but half Crow. Like Crow's doing the work to make you believe that this guy is as unimpeachable as everyone seems to think he is, which is really good work. Yeah, uh, a lot of the characterization in this movie in general is really good. I mean, not just for Russell Crowe's character. Like Paul Bettany, great. I love a Paul Bettany, right? Yeah, how can Um, you not? Yeah, I love, love him in Night's Tale. I'll give another shout out to Night's Tale. Jeffrey um, Chaucer, a movie he auditioned for. I'm just going to throw this out there. Uh, and the studio didn't want him. So they literally wrote a role for him and threw it in the movie. And it's the best thing in the movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 100%. Um, and yeah, just like his his uh, his relationship uh, with with Captain, you know, is very like... You can really tell that like they're they're friends, but also colleagues, and it's it's is really well acted in that mm-hmm. sense. And uh, their their cello and violin duets throughout the oh. movie. Um, I love the fact that the score is comprised almost entirely of cello and violin sonatas is a stroke of pure genius. I love it so much. Yeah, it's it's a great through line mm-hmm. um, in both in soundtrack and and on screen. Um, Agreed. It's just great, man. It's just really good stuff. It is. It's it's so good. Um, Paul Bettany is another one that we probably need to talk about because his his Hollywood career has been um, troubled at best. Uh, this is kind of the beginning of the end for him until he gets picked up by Marvel. 
but he's he rises to popularity in uh, a knight's tale playing jeffrey chaucer um then and that is in the year uh 2001 the same year he is cast as uh russell crowe's imaginary friend in a beautiful mind so then so he's got like the popular attention the oscar attention like he's going somewhere he gets cast in the lars von trier film dogville which is a tough sit but really popular in the indie scene uh nicole kidman's in that it's a great movie that is so hard to watch that i cannot recommend it to anybody even though i think it is good um i watched it once and i'm good haven't seen the sequel either because uh, and then he follows that up immediately with this and then we start to get into the are you okay paul bettany because he makes wimbledon in 2004 firewall in 2006 along with the da vinci code he is the voice of jarvis in this in uh, iron man he is playing a Southern gentleman in the secret life of bees. He's in a movie called Inkheart, which we will absolutely cover on this podcast at some point. Uh, and then he starts doing stuff like Legion and the tourist and margin call and priest and movies that no one really has seen. Uh, although he does weirdly play Charles Darwin uh, in a movie called uh, creation in 2009, which is a, a kind of a weird callback to, his character's obsession with the Galapagos in this movie. And then, so basically Paul Bettany tell, and he's told the story a lot, but it's around 2010, 2011. And he's just come out of his agent's office and his agent's like, look, you're unhirable. Like you've done such crap for so long. Like no one's going to hire you. No one wants you to do anything. Your career is over. And he walks outside and he's sitting on the curb and he's feeling bad for himself. And he gets a call and he looks at the phone and it's Joss Whedon. And Joss, in, and uh, he picks up the phone. He says, yeah, what's going on? And um, Joss says, hey, uh, how do you feel about being the Vision? And so he turned around. I, no, I think it was after after Mordecai, uh, another film that we will 100% cover on this podcast, um, that that happened, which Mordecai should have killed the careers of everyone involved. Uh, oof. <laughs> yeah, oof, indeed. Oof. But he uh, basically turns around, flips off his, uh, his agent's office, and... Uh, goes on to be in some of the most profitable movies in the world. So, you know, who's laughing now? Why, it's Paul Bettany all the way to the bank. Uh, I mean, at least at least until uh, WandaVision's over. And then he's kind of done, right? I don't know. It depends on what they do with WandaVision, man. Maybe they bring mm-hmm. him back. Who knows? Uh, all I know is we're going to end up covering a lot of Paul Bettany movies on this podcast. So we've got Legion. We've got Inkheart. We've got Priest. Uh, and we've got Mordecai, so that's at least four more. We could do a Paul Bettany month if we want to. I was about to say that sounds like a Paul <laughs> Bettany month, Stephen. <laughs> you just laid out a Paul Bettany month. All right, well, stay tuned, everybody, uh, for the most cursed month we've ever done. Uh, no, actually, our most cur- cursed month is is forthcoming. We've already got it on the books and planned for. And oh boy, howdy! <laughs> uh, I'm so sorry in advance. <laughs> I'm I'm not looking forward to it, guys. Um, I'm and that's, be real, real mad for four episodes straight. Look forward that's to that. Saying something, but oh yeah. So I mean, Paul Bettany. Um, we love him. We we stand Paul Bettany. But but honestly, since then, I mean, he's actually we'll cover another Paul Bettany movie because he's in Solo: A Star Wars Story as Dryden Voss. So there's five Paul Bettany movies that we're going to be covering on this podcast. So I mean, we we do love Paul Bettany and we do love to see him. But honestly, we we also love to see him do good work more than anything and honestly i would say this is 
really good work by Paul Bettany. This is probably the end of his Oscar Oscar-y movie trajectory, though, which didn't last very long. Uh, two or three movies it lasted, and he's he's kind of off that track. So, unfortunately, but hey, I love him as a Vision. So, hey, good yeah. for him. He's he's honestly really good as Vision in in a way that makes you wonder why they would have ever considered anyone else. Uh, quite frankly, so I mean, he's he's good. He's very very good. I I like it. Agreed. Um, yeah. Um, what else do we want to say about Master and Commander? Um, I don't know. I mean, there's there's look for for as much as I love this movie, as, as I've said, there's a lot going on. We could talk about a lot of different things because there's like, you know, it's very. Like, like I said before the the synopsis, it's is very episodic, very piecemeal. Like there's that through line of the whole, you know, French ship hunting, like hunting the French ship, but like the Acheron. You you kind of forget about it for you know maybe like two thirds of this movie because we're doing other stuff. We're not yeah, we're not really we're not talking about that French ship. Uh, yeah, there, like there are chunks of this movie where we just yeah it, it doesn't play a role. Like we're going around Cape Horn. And we're going to the Galapagos Islands and we're doing other stuff. And then, oh, my word, the friendship is back. Let's go. And then there's that really awesome action scene at the end. And But it, honestly, it kind of makes it all worth it because that action scene is so good. It is. Yeah. Even though, even though, like, it's a little predictable, um, the bait and switch with the captain of, of the Archeron. Um, sure. You're like, oh, that doctor is absolutely the captain. Just pretending. Like, it's, yeah. <laughs> come on. We've seen yeah. a movie before. <laughs> um, but hey but hey we get a sequel hook because of that so yeah ex- exactly uh a sequel hook that never uh ultimately p- pans out which is why we're here talking about this movie exactly um, yeah so what what would what would a sequel have looked like do you think i i think they would have probably picked a few more of the books and just kind of adapted it from there i think you could have easily made a trilogy out of this particularly borrowing if they're if they're borrowing as much from these books and and kind of in the same way you could piece together at least probably two other films from the material that's left, but I don't know if it was meant to be much larger than that. Um, but I mean, you don't adapt a properly, like, basically uh, kind of a good shorthand. If you want to know if a movie is intended to have a sequel or not, uh, look and see if it has a subtitle uh, because most movies that have a subtitle are meant to be like a subtitle in the title. So Master Commander is title, subtitle, The Far Side of the World. That you're setting me up for for a, a franchise of of Master and Commander movie, but I imagine they probably would have picked some other material from from a few more of the books. If I had more of a familiarity with the books, I would love to tell you what material they should have chosen, but I don't, so I can't. Right? Yeah, and like the the uh, both uh, Weir and Russell Crowe have gone record as saying, "Look, if you we want to do a sequel, but I don't think it's going to happen because you know, hey, talk to Fox." Uh, is basically what both of them have said. Yeah. So even though it did well at the box office and it got, you know, all that Oscar buzz for some reason, uh, which is weird. Um, it is bizarre. That like they didn't, the studio didn't want to make a sequel of all things. That's, see, that's yeah. so contrary to like most of the conversations surrounding failed franchises. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's usually the cast or the director or you know, it didn't do well enough. Uh, the audience didn't want a sequel. Uh, this time, the studio. Yeah, it's. I mean, it is absolutely the studio. It. I mean, it only made ninety three million domestic, which I mean, maybe they were expecting it to be more of a blockbuster, and it definitely was not that. So maybe that's what they were hoping for. I mean, it did 
118 million worldwide. So you're talking over 2 million, 200 million worldwide, which is, you know, a nice heft, but I mean, it didn't even break a million. Maybe they were hoping for something a little that played a little larger. I don't know. Um, but it is uh, a crying shame that we do not get more of these movies because I would truly love to see it. This is, it's, it continues to be insane to me that, you know, a movie may, turns a profit, um, but doesn't turn enough of a profit. Like, right. we like making money, but we like making more money than that. Yes. Uh, is, is, is there such a thing as too much money? No, no, there's not. Movie studios would argue, no, there isn't. <laughs> no, no, there is not such a thing as too much money. And in fact, we are holding out for that much money. Exactly. So this movie opened on November the 14th, 2003. Uh, you can tell it is a, uh, an awards player because it opens in the fall. It opens at number two uh, behind a family comedy in its second week that is gearing up for the Christmas season. Uh, and that is Will Ferrell's Elf. Oh, another movie we could honestly probably talk about on this podcast, quite frankly. Um, uh, maybe. I mean, it, that that's kind of one of those in that Beetlejuice camp where it's so popular. Why did they never make a sequel? Uh, and the answer it, there is Will Ferrell. Well, I mean, Beetlejuice, they wanted to make a sequel to that behind the scenes. It wasn't really based on popularity. Uh, Elf gained a lot of popularity after the fact. Um, it, it's definitely gotten more popularity over time. Sure. But I mean, it it was, it, you know, when it came out, it was it, it grew from its opening weekend. It opened at number two behind uh, this week's number three movie, uh, but it opened at number two and grew to number one. Um, it's made 70 million at this point. Uh, opens at 20 or it, uh, it does 26 million in its second weekend. Master and Commander is number two with 25 million um, in its opening weekend. Uh, also in its second weekend, our number three movie uh, that it's dropped two spaces is uh, an indication of how much of a letdown this movie was. The Matrix Revolutions. Oh, yeah. Man. Not a, not a movie that is uh, remembered fondly uh, by many. No, I mean, that that movie series is better than people give it credit for in a number of ways, and I will always defend it, but I remember at the time also being very disappointed. I haven't I've seen since, it since I saw it in theaters, so... I've I've since brought my opinion back around, um, but uh, at the time, yeah, man, I was real disappointed. Uh, I've heard, and I cannot verify, but I've heard that Seraph is a login screen, is that correct? Oh, absolutely it is. One of my favorite bits from the Blank Check podcast. It's great. Look, look guys, if you haven't listened to the, the Blank Check series on the podcast, Blank Check podcast series on The Matrix, please go do that. It'll change your opinion about that entire movie series. David Sims just says, Seraph is a login screen, and you hear Griffin sigh and go, damn it. Uh, do, I, do I like these movies now? Do I, do I like this now? You're turning me around on this whole franchise. I love it. I love it. It's great. Number four, uh, down from number three the previous week, Brother Bear, um, which had is in its fourth weekend and has grossed a total of $63 million. Matrix, by the way, in its second weekend has earned $114 million, which means it's opening weekend because it only earned 16 this weekend. Its opening weekend was like $98 million, which is insane. Well, yeah, everybody wanted to know how that series ended. And then we Correct. were real upset. We were real upset with how it ended. So, well, like, wait, really? That That's what we're doing? Okay, fine. Uh, and All then right. number five, a movie that I have watched twice in the last two years and absolutely love. 
despite the fact that it is not well regarded. It is a movie I look forward to talking about on this podcast one day. Joe Dante's Looney Tunes colon back in action. Wow. All and right. It's, and it's opening weekend. It it makes $9 million in its opening weekend. So not the, not the hit they were expecting from the Looney Tunes post Space Jam, for sure. No, no. That's because in the mid-90s, you had, you know, the basketball was arguably at the height of its popularity. Uh, the Looney Tunes were also in the middle of a big comeback in the 90s as well. They were. So that's what, that's what made Space Jam popular. Um, now... Yeah, look, man, millennials don't care about Looney Tunes cartoons anymore. Nope, they're not. Well, I, they're not rerun constantly like they were when we were kids. Yeah, it shouldn't I would be say millennials. millennials still care. Gen Z probably doesn't care. Yeah, yeah, the Zoomers don't care. Which uh, I mean, look, we'll find out. Space Jam Two coming soon. We'll, we'll probably hold off on talking about Looney Tunes back in action for that one. But Joe Dante loves the Looney Tunes, like Gremlins Two. My my beloved Gremlins Two opens with a looney tune short drawn by chuck jones so like he loves those characters so i would i would argue that back in action is much truer to the spirit of looney tunes than uh than space jam is space jam is a bad movie compared to back in action i've said it and i've Mm, meant that is the hottest take i may have heard in a very long time it's really not that hot a take i've i've made much hotter takes uh, maybe not on this podcast, but I have I've made much hotter takes. So I, I yeah. mean, not for you, it is an hot take for general <laughs> for general to the general population. If you were to throw that online, yikes, man! I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know. I I, I don't think it'd be that hot a take. I, I can throw it up on Twitter when this episode drops, and we'll find mm. out. Hmm. I don't like the like Space Jam is beloved by millennials. I, here's it the is thing. a beloved millennial movie. Here's the thing. I don't understand why it's not that good. Ah, that is oh. that's one of those that's one of those pure nostalgia things man it's not very good you you cast a non-actor in your lead role granted it's michael jordan sure we all love michael jordan but he's not an actor and also i mean we're living in a post roger rabbit world they're not paying the same care and attention to that that they did to roger rabbit so it 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 feels very disjointed like you can tell that the Looney Tunes and Michael Jordan are not in fact occupying the same space and not much effort is put into, you know, Joe Pitka may be a great director, but he's no Bob Zemeckis. So he's not even a Joe Dante. Sure. Man, if you, if you say so, (laughs) I do say, I can't, I can't get behind you on this one. I can't, I can't, I just can't do it. Have you seen Looney Tunes back in action? Yes. Recently? No. Okay. Have you seen space jam recently? I don't know. What's recently? Within the last five years. Probably, yeah. <laughs> Probably. I'm going to need you to sit down and watch both of those movies. <laughs> all right, man. And then we'll come back and we'll have this conversation. I don't know if my opinion is going to change, but all right. We'll find out when Space Jam 2 comes out and we talk Looney Tunes back in action, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's that'll be a good time to talk about it. Uh, but this movie, in terms of the critical consensus, uh, 85% is the thermometer rating. Uh, one of the few instances where I've seen where the thermometer rating is higher than the audience score. Audience score only gives it an 80, uh, a tragic 80, but uh, 85 is what the thermometer score gives it. Uh, the critics consensus, Russell Crowe's rough charm is put to good use in this masterful adaptation of Patrick O'Brien's novel. Uh, the Metacritic score is 81. It is a Metacritic must see. 
And Letterbox gives it a 3.7, which seems low. Like Letterbox is because I mean Letterbox is pretty much the audience score. So see, Steven, this is this is a lot like what I was talking about a few episodes back. This lends a lot of credence to what I was talking about. Critics have an eye for stuff that is Oscar bait. They have this eye for things that are high quality. They they think is this is worthy of an Oscar. And audiences don't care that much. Audiences you act like that's all critics are concerned about, and it's not. Well, critics love movies that are not Oscar baity movies, but they 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 have studied film. And so they know quality film when they see it. And when they recognize it, even if it's not an immediate crowd pleaser, whereas an audience will like Space Jam, for example, it's a crowd pleasing movie. Audiences loved it. Is it a good movie? No. Well, see, I think I think that's that's the dichotomy I'm really getting at here. Good movies versus movies that people love. Yeah, is that it seems to for critics, that seems to be a mutual mutually exclusive things. Not always. I, I think you have a very sour view of critics. Oh, I do. I'll admit that. One of these days we're <laughs> going to get a. One of these days I'm going to befriend an actual real life film critic, and we're going to invite him on this podcast. And you're going to have to eat every single one of these words. Oh, that's going to be an awkward conversation that I'm not going to be a fan of. Do we have to do that? Yep, it's going to happen. Can I take a day off for that episode? Nope. You're the co-host. You have to be on. Hey, do I? <laughs> yes. Yes, you do. All right, fine. In the same way that they can't do blank check without David. We cannot do disenfranchised without Brett. Fair enough. David, who is a critic, by the way. Right. Get him to come on our podcast. I would. David Sims, we are we are huge fans of, uh, well, I'm a huge fan of your work both on and off your podcast. Brett seems to only like your work on your podcast, but please come on. We would love to talk to you and make Brett eat his words uh, against film critics. Or, hey, if you anyone, any other film critics that want to come on the show, please come on the show. Um, seriously, even if like, Flights Camera Jackson, if you're listening, please come on the show. Yeah, we just basically want to make Brett feel real awkward for an episode. Yeah, looking forward to that. So, Brett, how did you rank this episode? Or how did you rank this episode? A quality episode, <laughs> this, maybe our best. This uh, this episode, maybe like oh. half a star. <laughs> uh, so, Brett, how did you rate this movie? Uh, this movie, I gave it four stars. Whereas I gave it four and a half. So we both did better than the uh, letterboxed consensus. Uh, I would argue this is probably the best movie we've covered on this podcast so far. And I would disagree with that and say that Beetlejuice, maybe Evil Dead are better than this. But that's my own horror bias showing. That's our I was Tim, Bur- say, Tim Burton bias, horror bias showing. That's not necessarily say, yeah. indicative of any sort of quality at all. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's personal bias. Because unlike critics... I have emotion. <laughs> I have emotion too. And this movie actually is emotionally I'm resonant. I'm kidding. I'm you kidding. Please, <laughs> please, critics, don't come for me. I'm sorry. I was joking. Critics, you can come for Brett at Gunslinger Fire on Twitter and Letterboxd. Um, actually, I think it's... It, um, I, I think we're ready for our final thoughts on this movie. Any any final thoughts on Master and Commander? Uh, look, it's a real good movie. I, I I told you before the record, like it's 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 a lot like Shawshank Redemption. Like it's it's a movie that you can throw on just in the background. It's a it's an easy watch. It's a movie that if you saw it on TV, no matter where it was in the movie, you'd be like, all right, I guess I'm going to watch this now. Um, it's just it's just good, man. It's just a really solid film, and you should it, definitely do yourself a favor and at least see it once. 
It's such an easy watch. It really is. Like I just put it on and immediately just kind of fell right into it. It's so good. I have one note I want to point out that I had in all caps in my the only note that I have in all caps in my my list of very my very short list of notes that I took on this movie because I was so engrossed. Uh, is I love it when they sing the shanties. Uh, when they start singing the sea shanties, I love it. I love it so much. I love when they start singing the shanties. It's so good, Brett. Just the the, the stuff this movie does with music is is fantastic. It's a great movie. You should watch it. It it gets the the the, the Stephen and Brett seal of approval. It's a movie that we both. Uh, really enjoyed so it's one that you should definitely check out uh and i guess that's all we have to say about that so until uh next week uh where we talk about another movie that did not get to be a franchise though it really wanted to uh i am stephen foxworthy for brett wright and myself it's really great when they sing the shanties i do i love it so much when everyone's the one one or two people start singing and then everyone starts singing and there's that one moment where the guy like starts singing but he's singing like too well like he's just beautiful and everyone kind of stops and looks at him like damn dude but it's so great just just watch the movie and then and the shanties they're so good i love it yeah i mean what what do you do with a drunken sailor steven uh put it put him in a cell uh till he's sober i guess or put him in a longboat till he's sober that's what that's the line that's what it is that's what you do with a drunken sailor but only if it's early in the morning <laughs> it's got to be early in the morning early in the morning that's that's what you got to do well, I, all right steven so I, I know you love to see shanties i do too they're so but good I, but i aren't you forgetting something what oh um yes yeah, so <laughs> uh you can follow us on on all the social medias uh wow on twitter we're on twitter at disenfranchpod. Uh, you can email us at disenfranchpod at gmail.com. I, Stephen Foxworthy, one of your hosts. I am on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chewy Walrus. Brett, where can the listeners find you if they should be so inclined? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Gunslinger Fire. Okay. And with that out of the way, uh, that is actually the end of the episode. And uh, you know what? You know what I really loved about this movie, Brett? The sea shanties? The sea shanties. They're so good. They're so good. Sea shanties. Ah, uh, sea shanty. Uh, use hashtag sea shanty. Yeah, do that. That'll make me. That'll make me smile and think of this movie again. I like. I like that. Mm-hmm.